0: do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed that you could say to a mountain, move from here to there, and it would move because nothing would be impossible for you? There are a lot of mountains that need to move from here to there. We are here with drug abuse destroying our community. And we need to move to there, where people find healing from addiction so that 22-year-olds don't die of overdoses. We are here, where children go to bed hungry at night. And we need to move to there, where no child ever has to think about where his or her next meal is coming from. We are here with negativity and venom and personal attacks being spewed out on social media and news outlets. And we need to move to there where we treat one another with dignity and respect. But it's not just out there. First Church, we have some mountains here as well. We are here financially where some people tithe, but honestly, most people aren't able or aren't willing to trust God with their finances. And we need to move to there, where a vital, vibrant, growing ministry is fully funded by people who count it a joy to give. And we are here With staff working hard to schedule, email, remind, and then refill the schedule when people don't show up or people aren't available, to there. Where all of us count it not an obligation, but a blessing to be able to use the gifts that God has given us to serve others. It perplexes me that Jesus says in this passage that all of those mountains plus all of the mountains that are out there in your life and out there in our world can be moved if we just have faith. So I want to take a look at this perplexing passage. And before we do that, I want to invite you to join with me in prayer. God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks when your word comforts us. God, we give you thanks when your word provides us direction, when we don't know which way to turn. And we even give you thanks when your word perplexes us, when it causes us to wrestle and to seek after understanding from you. And so, God, we pray that you would give us your understanding for each one of us and that you would speak through me, Or in spite of me, so that your message, your gospel, might be proclaimed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wanna, can I tell you about some things that perplexed me in this? First of all, it just jumped out at me that Jesus says to his disciples, nothing is impossible for you. Because really, I mean, I can easily believe that Jesus can do miracles, heal the blind, cure the lame, make the deaf hear again, even the dead live again. Jesus is, after all, God. But it's a little harder for me to believe that nothing is impossible for me to do. I mean, I've done some things that kind of seem like miracles. I have successfully navigated a double traffic circle in Washington, D.C., that's not a real miracle. That just feels like a miracle to me. And yet God's word tells us that Jesus told his disciples, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move from here to there, and it will move because nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing being impossible doesn't really seem to apply to many of us. So does that mean that my faith, maybe your faith, is smaller than a mustard seed? The other part of the scripture that bothers me is the way that Jesus talks to the people. Doesn't he sound ticked? I mean, like he's having a bad day and has run out of patience with people who just don't get it. The disciples tried to heal the boy, but they couldn't. They were ineffective. How many times have you prayed for someone and found that you were ineffective? It's a little perplexing for me to think that Jesus might be ticked off at me because I have been ineffective. That Jesus might say to us, you unbelieving and perverse generation. None of us want to have our faith not measure up. Imagine for a moment what it would have been like to have been one of those nine disciples. Remember, Jesus called them. They don't volunteer. They were handpicked. They chose to follow Jesus. They're sent out to be agents of God's grace. We talk about transformation all the time here. We celebrate when lives are changed inside and out, when people take transformational steps Like going on a week-long mission trip to Crisfield, Maryland with our student ministry. We celebrate that because we know that they will come back not only having done good work in the name of Jesus Christ, but they will come back with their faith stretched, with their faith strengthened because of that experience. And we also rejoice with those who took a step of discipleship this morning by committing to be an active part of this church, by supporting the ministry with their prayers, their presence, their gifts, their service, and their witness. Like those first disciples, they choose to follow Jesus, and we celebrate that. But while we celebrate ways in which we see transformation and growth and service In people that we know, we tend to be a little hard on those original 12 disciples. We critique them for failing to understand Jesus's mission, for messing up over and over again. And yet think about the sacrifices that those men made for Jesus. None of the people who are going to Crisfield, Maryland right now are permanently walking away from their job, Or their family, so that they can be committed disciples. They're coming back. And yet that is exactly what the original 12 did. They walked away and they didn't go back. They went from being fishermen, tax collectors, and rebels into followers and students of Jesus. They left their business. They left their family to devote themselves to learning the ways of Jesus. And they went from being ordinary guys to people whom Jesus gave authority to drive out evil spirits, and to heal every disease and sickness. They followed Jesus, and they saw him do miracles. They were there when the crowds gathered around him, and he healed every disease and sickness among the people, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. They were there when he healed the leper, the paralytic, the blind, the mute, and the centurion's servant they passed out the five loaves of bread and the fish to a crowd of more than, two, two, uh, than 5,000 people, and then they gathered up the leftovers. They were in the boat with Jesus when he saved their necks and calmed the storm, and they watched him walk on water. They knew what Jesus could do, and they had seen it with their own eyes. They had heard it with their own ears, That they had been given authority by Jesus to do what he was doing. He told them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And I think they trusted that. Jesus told them they had authority, and so they were confident that they could make a difference in Jesus's name. And so when Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, he leaves the other nine down in the valley with the people, and they got their opportunity to put their faith into action. Because while Jesus is up on the mountain, and they're down in the valley with the people, a father comes to them with his son who has epilepsy, and he's desperate Because the seizures cause the boy to fall into the fire and the water. And the boy has a life-threatening condition. Father comes to Jesus' disciples. He is looking for help. And here's their chance to freely give to someone in need. They are ready. They have learned from Jesus. They have been given authority by Jesus. But to their surprise, they can't heal the boy. I think that that caught them off guard. Why? Why? Jesus had given them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness, but they were missing something because they failed to heal the boy. I just love the honesty of the Bible. It doesn't omit the embarrassing stories and it puts them right out there. There is no covering up the disciples' failure. The fact that the disciples were ineffective is perplexing to me, but it's also comforting. Because haven't we all been in the same place as the disciples? Haven't you ever prayed and prayed for God to do something and not gotten what you'd hoped? And then wondered, is something wrong with me? Didn't I pray enough? Didn't I pray right? Do I have enough faith? Because something went wrong. What went wrong? That's what the disciples wanted to know. And so they pulled Jesus over in private and they asked the question that is bugging them Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus' answer is painfully honest because you have so little faith. Ouch. It isn't the first time they've heard that either. Jesus has a habit of pointing out the disciples' little faith. Repeatedly, he addressed them as, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. faith. Oh, you of little faith. The word for little can be translated puny. The disciples have a puny faith. It's not just a bad day for them. Over and over, Jesus has to confront them with the reality that their faith isn't what it needs to be. It wasn't the boy's lack of faith. It wasn't the father's lack of faith. It was the disciples' lack of faith that made their efforts ineffective. It was the disciples' puny faith. Which brings me to another part of this scripture that bothers me. Why is Jesus so hard on them? You know, doesn't he believe in positive reinforcement? I think I would have had a very different response. I would have said something like, you're just learning. I think... I you know you've never tried to cast out a demon like this this was your first attempt you'll get more chances don't be so hard on yourself just keep trying but that isn't what Jesus says not at all he says they are an unbelieving perverse generation with a puny faith and i have to admit to you that those words perplex me we are used to a gentle jesus not a harsh jesus I didn't know how to interpret that response, and so I sought some guidance from experts to help me figure out what does Jesus mean here, and why does he seem so harsh? And the most common explanation as I search through commentaries is that Jesus spoke out of frustration. Does that mean he lost it? I don't think so. When Jesus is harsh with us, it is for our benefit not to blow off steam at our expense. Jesus had something important to teach the disciples, and he was frustrated because he so deeply cared about them. Remember Hebrews chapter 12? It reminds us, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. I believe Jesus is hard on the disciples because he wants them to really get it that they have not arrived. He wants them to understand that they have so much potential and so far to go. I have a friend who uh, recently wrote a note to his high school coach to thank him for pushing him so hard to give his very best. The coach made a difference not only in how he played baseball but in choices that he made as he lived his life. And years later, after high school, he realized that his coach was tough on him because he wanted to bring out the best in his players and that it made all the difference, not just in a sport, but in his life. The people who really help us reach our potential expect a lot from us. And sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. I still remember a conversation I had a long time ago with one of my favorite teachers. I won a very, very small scholarship from the Berks County Home Economics Association. And I was asked to go to their meeting to accept my award. And because their meeting was happening during finals week, I felt that studying for finals was more important than attending a meeting of the Berks County Home Economics Association. And I explained that to my teacher. (laughs) With uncharacteristic harshness, she told me that it would be wise for me to reconsider my decisions. I went to that meeting because she was harsh. And I still remember that lesson about the importance of showing up to say thank you. So it leaves me with two questions that I want to kind of spend some time to walk through with you. One, my questions are, why couldn't the disciples heal the boy? And how can we have a faith that will move mountains? The disciples were missing something. They didn't get it. They thought that they could do this, but they couldn't. Why is their faith puny? And really, how do you even measure faith? Do you have to be public and vocal to have a lot of faith? Does the person who stands on the street corner and shouts out to people to repent because the end is near have more faith than the grandmother who day after day cares for her three-year-old grandson and teaches him and shows him the love of Jesus in quiet and consistent ways? I don't think so. Do you have to be bold and radical in order to have a big faith? Does the man who refuses medical treatment because, for his illness because he believes that God is going to heal him have more faith than the man who exercises and eats well and takes care of his body because he believes that it is the temple of God? I don't think so. Matthew doesn't tell us why the disciples have a puny faith, but something is missing and actually something is literally missing. If you have your Bible with you, I wanna invite you to, to open it up to Matthew chapter 17. And I uh, take a look, I want you to put up your hand if in your Bible you can find Matthew 17 verse 21. Most people are going to find that their Bible goes directly from verse 20 to verse 22 probably with a footnote about the omission of verse 21. Respected translations of the Bible do not have Matthew 21 because the most reliable manuscripts do not include this verse. And experts believe that it was added to Matthew's gospel later, but was actually written by Mark, not Matthew. Because see, Mark also records the story of the healing of the epileptic boy brought to the disciples by his father. And it is in Mark that we find something that's missing. In Mark, when the disciples ask, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replies, this kind can come out only by prayer. What are the disciples missing? They are missing the power of God and the presence of God that comes from a life of prayer. They don't have the power of God because they don't experience the presence of God in their life like Jesus does, and they don't pray like Jesus prays. They were given authority to drive out demons and heal the sick, but that authority was limited. And it was dependent upon the ongoing presence of God that comes out of a relationship with God that is cultivated through prayer. God is not a genie in a bottle that we can call up and grant us three wishes. The disciples discovered here that Jesus is not a talisman. Serving in the name of Jesus is not like having a lucky four-leaf clover in your pocket. Learning to be a disciple of Jesus, who can move mountains from here to there, isn't like going to Hogwarts and learning magic spells. Harry Potter and his friends learn to control magic powers. Healing in the name of Jesus isn't magic. The power of God isn't something that we can call up by using the right words or enough words. Praying longer isn't the answer. Jesus had already taught them that lesson, that praying with many words isn't what God seeks. Prayer is about surrendering to the will of God. And that means leaving the results of our efforts in the hands of God. In Celebrate Recovery, we pray the serenity prayer every week. And you may be familiar with part of the serenity prayer. A lot of people know this prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. But the serenity prayer doesn't stop there. It also includes these words, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. We have to come to terms with the reality that our power is limited, that we can't make all things right, no matter how big our faith is, but we can surrender to God's will. I think Jesus was harsh because he wanted to make sure that the disciples realized that they have a puny faith now, but if they cultivated a life of prayer and learned to surrender to God's will, there was so much possibility for growth. And that made me think about our faith. What are we not able to do, First Church, because our faith is too small? And where are our possibilities for growth? We celebrate all the ways that we are making an impact in our community and beyond, but I am convinced that we are only experiencing the tip of the iceberg of what God could do and wants to do through this church. Most most of us have a puny faith. Now, I don't like saying that. You probably don't like hearing that. You might even feel insulted to hear that. But a truly mountain-moving faith isn't easily insulted because it's not concerned about being great. It starts with being humble, with humbling yourself like a child. It starts with recognizing that we haven't arrived, that we all have a lot to learn, that we don't always have to call the shots, but we are willing to be led by others, that we all need help. A couple of weeks ago, I attended a support group for people with mental illness, and I sat in a circle and I listened to person after person share their struggles. And they were so honest, saying things that people don't usually share with others. And their stories were absolutely heartbreaking. Like the father in our story, many of the folks who sat in that circle were there because they have a son or daughter who was suffering from a mental illness. And they not only feared for their child's well-being, many of them feared for their child's life because they recognized that their mental illness could be life-threatening. They didn't know where to turn. They'd been other places, They were looking for hope and for help. And like the father in the story, they weren't giving up. There was a point, honestly, in the meeting when I just started to feel a little bit overwhelmed. Because their pain was so great. And their situations were so difficult. They needed more than a counselor. They needed more than legal assistance. They needed more than a safe place to share their struggles. They needed more than a puny faith. Oh, they needed a mountain-moving faith. They needed a faith that could take them from here, a place of darkness and confusion due to mental illness, to there, a place of hope and healing. They needed Jesus. And I felt my heart breaking for people who sat in that circle because I have seen the mountain of mental illness moved. I know that Jesus can heal mental illness, that it is possible through medical care, through counseling, along with God's healing power through prayer. Not the prayer of many words of God please heal me, God please heal me, God please heal me. But the prayer of surrender, the prayer of saying every day, God, I offer you myself. I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Please lead me and guide me so that I can do today what you need me to do today so that I can be well. God's healing power isn't controlled by prayer, but so often God chooses to unleash God's healing power through prayer. And honestly, yet really few of us pray. When you join the church, if you're a member of the church, when you joined, you committed to support the church with your prayers. Can I challenge you to pray for the church? Will you pray for God to provide the financial resources to meet the needs of a vital growing ministry? Will you pray for God to provide the volunteers that are needed week in and week out so that we don't spend hours and hours of paid staff time trying to fill in the gaps? And if you have a mountain in your own life that needs to be moved, will you pray about that? Will you come to the North Campus 6 a.m. on Friday mornings and join with others in 30 minutes of prayer as we seek simply to be in the presence of God together? I think this story teaches us that we need to humble ourselves. We need to recognize that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And we need to pray. We need to pray in a way that invites God's presence into our lives and surrenders our will. Because when we can honestly say that we seek God's presence in our life more than we seek God's answers to our problems, we will find that nothing is impossible for you. Amen.